If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 624. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. Support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. You've already heard about that. Also, click on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. Throw a few pennies my way. Click on the shop tab. Get my logo and all kinds of cool stuff. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you're thinking locally and acting locally. Share my podcast around on social media. Do all you can to grow the audience. Send me those show requests because I do enjoy it. It keeps the show fresh. keeps you engaged. I may not respond to your emails, but I do appreciate them. And you might, you never know, you might get your idea on the show. And in fact, this is another listener-generated episode. It came from a colleague of mine, a friend of mine. Um, so not, not uh, generally an a, uh, exclusive listener, but he wanted me to talk about this. And it's a piece that appeared in the American Conservative about NASCAR. And the title of the piece is uh, The Decline and Fall of NASCAR. And I, I really thought this was an interesting piece. It was published April 20th by Wells King. And when you look at the culture war, right, and you look at what's happening in America, you wouldn't think about NASCAR at first, but some of the things that have been going on in NASCAR are indicative of this larger process, this larger cultural war. Uh, this, I mean, the woke revolution is at NASCAR. And it started hitting NASCAR a long time ago. And the reason being is because NASCAR decided, as most corporations do, that their base was too narrow. They didn't have enough diversity. They didn't have enough outside interest. They needed to broaden the base of the sport to make more money. You see, it came down to money. I think what they've figured out is that they, I mean, in some ways, are they making more money? I, I don't know. I don't know what their revenue stream is. But what they've started doing is, is forgetting the blue-collar, uh, white, middle-class, southern uh, base that they had. And they're moving on to corporate interests, uh, again, to, uh, to uh, outside interests. They've moved tracks out of the south. Or now, you know, we gotta have, we got to have races here, there, and everywhere. Um, and so that has changed the sport. This sport, NASCAR grew out of bootleg racing, uh, for, for moonshiners, they had these bootlegs, these moonshine runners, and um, they decided they were going to uh, to build fast cars and then see who had the fastest car. They just go out and race them. That's where it came from. I mean, this was this was all about southern resistance to tax collectors in the hills of the South. You know, places like North Carolina, and and um, I mean, that's that's the thing that made NASCAR so unique. This is what it was. And, of course, the, the elites, the money, the corporate interests decided that, you know, we need to get rid of that. We don't need to have that appeal anymore. That's too hillbilly. That's too redneckish. Let's go out and do something else. Now, full disclosure, I've never been a big NASCAR fan. 
Um, my family was a big NASCAR fan, but I never really enjoyed it that much. I, I've, I've enjoyed other sports, but I mean, NASCAR uh, is interesting at times, but I, I, I haven't watched a race um, in probably over a decade. Um, and so, you know, I don't even know who's popular anymore. I don't know any of that. Um, racing is an interesting sport, but when you look at how woke it has gone, and of course, you know, NASCAR has been in the news with the Bubba Wallace incident, which turned out to be not, the FBI, I mean, sent teams of people in the NASCAR pits and then figured out it was just, uh, the standard pull for a garage door. I mean, this is how stupid woke really is. And the fact that the government would send it, the U.S. government would send in, you know, teams of FBI agents to investigate this while there's other things they haven't been able to figure out, which, you know, it's because, of course, they don't want to figure them out because they know there's something to it, is a big issue. But let me read some of this piece. Um, and it says, on February 18, 2001, Dale Earnhardt hit a wall and American motorsport was forever changed. Earnhardt was a legend. His garage, Mahal, in Mooresville, North Carolina, was a pilgrimage site. Over 17 million watched as his number three car made light contact with Sterling Martin, collided with Ken Schrader as he tried to regain control and smash into a wall at 160 miles per hour on the final turn of the lap. His death was a collective trauma. And again, this is true. I was watching that race. And I'll never forget because, you know, it happened. And I called my dad uh, after it was over when I had heard that Earnhardt was dead. And I said, you know, did you watch the race? He said, yeah, we watched the race. And I said, you know, Earnhardt died. And he said, Earnhardt's dead? And I said, yeah, he's dead. He, he died in the crash. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was silence. Now he wasn't a you know, big Earnhardt fan. My, my brother, uh, wasn't a, I mean, my brother was kind of an Earnhardt fan. Um, they liked other people, uh, but you know, to lose Dale Earnhardt was a huge deal. Uh, there were, I mean, Dale Earnhardt was, um, you know, a rock star to NASCAR fans. There was no doubt about it. When the New York Times announced the crash on its front page the next day, though, the headline didn't refer to him by name. Instead, it called him stock car star. Editors did not think it was safe to assume readers would recognize the sport's most beloved hero. By 2001, such northern disdain was already out of date. Driving fast in an oval was no provincial pastime. NASCAR had gone national. Its track seated more fans than the largest football stadiums. Its ratings surpassed those of Major League Baseball in some regions, and it was poised to surpass the other big four American sports leagues, the NHL, NBA, NFL. In fact, NASCAR had just signed an unprecedented $2.4 billion television contract. The 2001 Daytona 500 was the first race to be aired under it. These modernizing forces accelerated after Earnhardt's death, and partly because of it. The crash marked a moment when NASCAR undertook a deliberate transformation to make itself more commercially appealing, more scientifically managed, and less distinctively Southern. The opposite of what Earnhardt stood for. We're living with the consequences today. And this is true. I mean, why did people watch NASCAR? Because they wanted to see the crashes. Because it was dangerous. Because you saw these horrible things happen. And it's what people were glued to, right? It's why they watched it. And so, but this is, this is an interesting, you know, 2001 is the turning point. Here we are 21 years later, and everything they were putting in motion there was put in motion. And now we have modern NASCAR, which is so vanilla and so boring, who would even want to watch it? The stereotype of NASCAR as a redneck sport contains a grain of truth. American stock car racing originated with bootleggers in the Carolina Piedmont, running moonshine and dodging the revenue man. Early races took place on dirt tracks with no formal organization. The rules could be anarchic. In 1947, in an effort to bring order to the chaos, a gas station owner corralled a group of race promoters in a Daytona Beach hotel bar to draw up a uniform set of rules with a governing structure. 
the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing was born. First race was held in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1949 on a dirt track. Asphalt would come a year later in the first race at Darlington, South Carolina. The sport's earliest icons were recovered moonshiners from a region like the last American hero, Junior Johnson. Junior Johnson is a huge uh, icon in the sport. Dale Earnhardt was a product of this rough-and-tumble era. He grew up in Kannapolis, a textile town in the North Carolina Piedmont. The name is Greek for City of Looms. He dropped out of high school in ninth grade and worked odd jobs around town, including as a mechanic and a welder. In his 20s, he later said his family probably should have been on welfare. We didn't have money to buy groceries. He raced as an amateur, working on his cars in the garage in his mother's backyard. He lived in a trailer next door. Earnhardt's appeal was not just his humble background, but the gruff persona that it formed. Compare him to fellow NASCAR legend Richard Petty, who was tied with Earnhardt for the most championships of all time. Both had fathers who were drivers, but Petty descended from NASCAR royalty. Lee Petty was a successful driver and the sport's first three-time champion. Ralph Earnhardt's success was limited to the dirt track, races of the Carolinas. By NASCAR standards, Richard Petty was clean-cut, a father of four married for nearly 50 years. Dale Earnhardt had two divorces before the age of 25, and for years he couldn't pay child support. He was a gambler, often borrowing a few hundred dollars on a Thursday to buy tires and parts for his races on Friday and Saturday, betting that he would win enough to pay off his debts by Monday. The men's nicknames indicate the divergent personalities. Dubbed the King, Richard Penny was the quintessential carburetor cowboy. He happily mingled with fans and signed autographs, always wearing his trademark cowboy hat with a plume of rooster feathers in the front. Dale Earnhardt was the intimidator and the man in black. He was standoffish. Petty was friendly with the media and became a broadcaster himself in retirement. Dale was deliberately antagonistic toward reporters, known for literally stepping on their toes when they interviewed him. And I think this is, again, the appeal for people in this sport. It's this blue-collar, you know, rebel kind of persona. And um, I I think that that's that's where... uh, you know, the sport gained its most traction. And of course, Petty, in his, as, as a racer, was very, very good. And the, the fact is, you know, he had some pretty horrific crashes himself. There's one uh, on that you can find a video of where he's actually hanging out of the car as it's, you know, skidding down the road and uh, his arms hang. I mean, it's, it's horrible. He should have been killed several times over, um, but he wasn't. And so that was part of the allure. You know, the guy had like nine lives, it seemed like. These personality differences were reflected in their driving. Petty dominated the sport for years thanks to an impressive pit crew and a more conservative racing style that made a deliberate push for the lead in the final laps of the race. Earnhardt was aggressive. He took his lead early and either drove past competitors or bumped them out of the way. This delighted some fans and infuriated others. One sent an anonymous death threat to Dale that the FBI took seriously enough to assign a protective detail to the Budweiser 500 at Watkins Glen and the Miller High Life 500 at Pocono in 1987. Dale didn't mind the haters. He often said booze on Sunday mean, means money on Monday. In fact, the very incident that earned him his lasting nickname, the Intimidator, alienated as much as it endeared. It was a 1987 all-star race in Charlotte, known simply as the Winston, an exhibition race for the top recent race winners. Victory didn't count toward the championship. Only money and pride were on the line. Earnhardt had just been in a heated battle with his longtime rival Bill Elliott all-race, rubbing fenders at nearly 200 miles per hour. With just seven laps ago, Earnhardt with Earnhardt in the lead, Elliott made a move inside, his number nine cores car bumping Earnhardt's number three Wrangler off course and into the infield grass, surely spelling the end of his chances. But Earnhardt managed to regain control on the infield and maintain the lead. Earnhardt would hold on to win the race and go on to win the Winston Cup championship that year, his third. 
The moment entered NASCAR lore as the pass in the grass, so it wasn't technically a pass. Earnhardt treated racing as a contact sport and claimed to have never been scared in a race car. As his longtime rival Darrell Waltrip explained, with Earnhardt, every lap is a controlled crash. And so this is, this is what made the sport interesting. And it, of course, as the writer says, that's why his death was so traumatic and why it was so iconic that the crash that killed him ended up empowering the forces that represented everything he stood against. So he goes into what happened. Well, the first thing was safety. Uh, Earnhardt had been the fourth driver to die in eight months across the sport. His death prompted NASCAR to build a $10 million, 61,000-square-foot research and development center in Concord, North Carolina, the next town over to where former Dale grew up. Gary Nelson, the managing director of competition, was tasked with running the center and implementing new safety rules. His mandate, in the words of NASCAR spokesman, was to change the sport into a true scientific fashion that matches today's times and technology. He started by putting foam barriers on all NASCAR tracks and mandating head and neck support Hans devices for all drivers. This is exactly what killed Earnhardt. He didn't have a Hans device, and his head smashed back against the seat, and you know, he wore an open-face helmet. It wasn't you know, the modern kind of helmet, and it, it, it killed him. By far, the biggest change Nelson spearheaded was his so-called car of tomorrow. The product of five years of development, the car is four inches wider and two inches taller than the previous standard. It was deliberately designed to be slower, with a thicker, more box-like bumper and a more upright windshield to increase drag. The driver's seat was moved four inches to the right to make it safer in a crash. The car of tomorrow debuted in 2007, was mandated for all cars in 2008. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, you have, the car doesn't look like a stock car anymore. Think about what NASCAR is. It's the stock car. Stock car. So it was the car that you could just pick up on the street and go modify it a little bit and run it around the track. And of course, the crashes. There was. I used to show a video in class of one of the largest crashes in NASCAR history. There's 50 cars, I think, involved in this stupid thing. And cars are flipped over, and guys are wearing, you know, short sleeve shirts with their cigarettes rolled up in the sleeve and getting out. And they're like, "Oh man, that stinks!" And your cars are on fire. That's what. That's what made NASCAR you know, this blue collar thing. Just a bunch of crazy guys out there that have no fear running around this track at, you know, 200 miles an hour, or at that time it was 150 miles an hour. But still, I mean. They had roll cages and seatbelts. That's all they had. Uh, and so this is what made it uh, something that you know people wanted to watch. And there was a very famous driver, Fireball Roberts, who was actually killed in a, in a fiery crash. It was horrible. But this is, I mean, his nickname fit, right? So um, th this, is, uh, this is what made NASCAR so endearing. It's the guy that has the garage behind the house with the trailer next door, and he's souping up his car, and he goes out there, and he runs it around, and he wins some money. It's anybody could do it. Now you've got teams of people. You've got all this money in it and everything else. It becomes much more difficult to break into the, to the sport. As he says here, fans hated this. They mocked the car of tomorrow as a flying brick with a wing. Kyle Busch, the first driver to win a race in one, declared from victory lane, they suck. It's hard to drive and hard to set up. The backlash was so severe that NASCAR uh, punished dissent. Driver Denny Hamlin was fined $25,000 for complaining about the car in public. Nevertheless, fans and drivers grumbled that it handled worse, looked terrible, and completely changed the way drivers had to approach their races in terms of strategy. But the car rated highly in all the metrics that the suits cared about. It was safer and also cheaper, and it led to more competitive, tightly packed racing because it was slower. So they stood their ground. NASCAR introduced a new technological contraption to enforce standardization, a laser inspection system dubbed the, the CLAW that fit over the new cars and regulated the chassis down to the thousandths of an inch. Teams whose car failed the claw inspection were slapped with $100,000 fines and multi-race suspensions. We don't have to speculate what Dale would have thought about this. 
Already in 2000, when NASCAR mandated the use of restrictor plates and further regulations for races at the Daytona and Talladega speedways, Earnhardt was making a fuss. They took racing out of the hands of the drivers and the crews. We can't adjust and make our cars drive like we want, he complained. This is a joke to have to race like this. So, I mean, look, yeah, Earnhardt was old school. I mean, in the, this, they're changing everything here. They're making it more uh, appealing to not the real fans, but to the fans that they're trying to attract to the sport. The second area of change was the competition. NASCAR championships have always been determined by a point system. But under pressure to go more mainstream and grow its fan base, NASCAR faced a problem. Its season ended in the fall and had to compete with October baseball in the NFL. And it didn't have a playoff or postseason. The point system meant that the season's champion could be for a foregone conclusion long before the final race. NASCAR executives also feared that the point system failed to fully incentivize winning. In 2003, Matt Kenseth won the championship despite having only won one race, while another driver, Ryan Newman, had won eight races. So, led by CEO Brian France, the grandson of the founder of NASCAR, the organization adopted in 2004 what was known as the Chase for the Championship. After the first 26 races of, 30, of 36, NASCAR would take the top 10 drivers in points and more or less hit reset. Points from the final 10 races determine the season's champion. So this was designed to get more interest in it. Well, now we have a playoff. We have a playoff. But as the piece says, as, as with any policy change, the chase came with unintended consequences. By increasing the reward for winning, it increased the penalty for not winning or, not, or, for, failing, or for failing to finish. This discouraged the kind of aggressive tactics that Dale was known for, like spinning out other drivers on the final lap and risking being disqualified himself. So while the suits could cite indicators of increased competition, lead changes, laps led, and race-winning drivers, fans could see for themselves a different approach to driving. The biggest problem with NASCAR efforts was that the new rules were just incredibly confusing. The purpose of the new point system and the chase was to make each season more competitive. As France declared, we want our sport, especially during the chase, to be more about winning. But the end result was a statistical mess. Fan reaction was predictable. As Missouri fan uh, Lynette Williams told USA Today in 2016, the constant changes NASCAR does, it doesn't have the same good feeling it used to have. We lost interest in NASCAR. NASCAR's lost interest in us. There are just so many things involved. There are a lot of disenfranchised, disheartened people like us. So again, making changes just to make changes to appeal to a television audience or to a broader audience outside of the sport. The third area of reform was image. NASCAR long wanted to enter the American mainstream and distance itself from these southern stereotypes and its Talladega Knights reputation. As Mike Helton, who became president of NASCAR in 2000, explained during the launch of a diversity initiative in 2006, we believe strongly that the old southeastern redneck heritage that we had is no longer in existence. But we also realize that there's going to have to be an effort on our part to convince others to understand that. Think about what he just said there. He just threw his entire base under the bus. He just threw the entire base in 2006, the entire base of NASCAR. He just threw him under the bus. So why any of these people would watch the sport anymore, I have no idea. I mean, uh, there's nostalgia. There's just, we like to watch racing. But he just completely obliterated the entire base with that statement. NASCAR's first moves on sponsorships. The two biggest series used to be the Winston Cup and the Bush Cup. Cigarettes and beer. Cars were sponsored by consumer brands popular with the white working class. Wrangler Jeans, Goodwrench, Budweiser. Military branches sponsored cars as well. This was the era of the Iraq War, when NASCAR dads were a political constituency. But NASCAR made a deliberate choice to discourage these types of sponsorships. In the case of tobacco, it canceled them outright, ending its partnership with R.J. Reynolds in 2003, seven years before the FDA's ban on tobacco sponsorships. 
The Winston Cup became the Nextel Cup. The Bush Cup was renamed Nationwide for Nationwide Insurance. The latest sponsors include Monster Energy and Xfinity. This next move is on drivers. The shift started with Jeff Gordon and Jimmy Johnson, clean-cut Californians with little charisma but cultural ties to the West Coast markets that NASCAR wanted to target. Next came woman driver Danica Patrick, who never won a race but graced the cover of Sports Illustrated and was consistently spotlighted in NASCAR coverage. Her manufactured rise coincided with the late Obama era and the heyday of girl-boss feminism. The culture war hit NASCAR most dramatically with the rise of Bubba Wallace, an African-American driver who in June 2020 debuted a Black Lives Matter car with compassion, love, and understanding on the hood. Eleven days later, he reportedly discovered a noose in the garage stall at Talladega. The FBI investigated it as possible hate crime, but eventually concluded what many fans knew from the start, that supposed noose was a pull rope for the garage door, as would be found in any of the driver's stalls. So, I mean, look, this is important. That part of it is important, the, the cultural part. And I think that turned a lot of people off uh, because, again, going mainstream. We're going to go mainstream. We're going to get rid of the blue-collar, white working class people, and we're going to replace them with somebody else. Now, I will say this about Jeff Gordon. Um, you know, Jeff Gordon was very popular in the South even, and among women in particular, because he was good-looking, clean-cut guy. And um, he was the foil to Dale Earnhardt. So you had the men, you know, the husbands that liked Dale Earnhardt and the wives that liked Jeff Gordon, and it created controversy. And this is what people liked. Um, and, I, you know, you had a lot of this going on, and Jeff Gordon haters and other things. So it's interesting how that worked out. The fourth and final area of change was the business side. NASCAR wanted to expand the class of people it appealed to and also move beyond its regional market in the southeast. Statements from NASCAR made clear that it was a business strategy. Helton in 2003 referred to the oversaturation that exists in the southeastern United States versus new races being in areas where there is not a saturation to get more exposure in more major markets. New tracks were built in Miami, Chicago, Dallas, and Las Vegas. These were cookie-cutter tracks, all one and a half miles long with luxury boxes and suites like you see in NFL stadiums. Formerly, tracks had been individually distinctive with their own special quirks. Pocono Raceway, for existence, was a triangle. The old south, southern tracks tended to be shorter, tidal overs, which made more dynamic and more dangerous racing. It was as if MLB had torn down Fenway Park and Wrigley Field and replaced them with standard-issue ballparks. But NASCAR did not increase the number of races in its schedule, so it was a zero-sum trade-off that resulted in many smaller tracks closing down. For towns like uh, like North Wilkesboro and Rockingham, having a track was a draw that brought in revenue from tourism and hospitality. But for NASCAR, the revenue was just too small, especially compared to the potential of large markets like Miami and Vegas. What happened in Rockingham was typical. Rockingham Speedway in North Carolina held two races per year for nearly 40 years. When it failed to sell out its races, the track was bought up by International Speedway Corporation, a big conglomerate, and its fate was sealed. ISC moved its fall race lot to a a sleek new track in Los Angeles, and the following year moved its spring race to Fort Worth. Rockingham has not, not hosted a major race for NASCAR since 2004. For some NASCAR fans, this marked a betrayal by the sport they loved. Donald Hill of Trinity, North Carolina, was interviewed by a journalist at a race in Martinsville, Virginia, just over the Carolina border in 2006. He lamented the closure of tracks in the region. It's a little bit changed since they moved a lot of stuff out of North Carolina. I hope they don't take Martinsville. If they take much more, we're not going to have nothing. But this is exactly what happened, right? I mean, so, um, and he, he talks about at the end of the piece how, you know, uh, the, the place that Dale Earnhardt grew up was a, uh, or in the area, Darlington, for example, um, these, were, these were places that were blue-collar working-class towns, textile towns. 
Uh, Dale Earnhardt's hometown was at one point the home to the largest textile factory in the world. Its number one mill was a massive complex larger than the Pentagon. The neighborhood where Dale grew up was known as Car Town, with streets named Chrysler, Ford, and Chevrolet, people who loved to tinker with cars and race them. Then the company that owned the biggest mill, Pilotech, started feeling competitive pressure from Mexico. Unwilling to save itself by offshoring, Pilotech filed for bankruptcy in 2003 and caused the largest layoffs in the history of the state of North Carolina. And they put in a research park. The only remnant of what came before is the town's various homages to Dale Earnhardt. The main drag is Dale Earnhardt Boulevard, a 9-foot, 900-pound bronze statue of him stands at the center of town in Dale Earnhardt Tribute Plaza. The local minor league baseball team was named the, in- the Intimidators. The nearby Carowinds Amusement Park features a red and black roller coaster in tribute to Earnhardt, but little else remains. And this has happened all over the South. In these textile, blue-collar textile areas, Pillotex actually owned several mills throughout the South, and they closed all of them. Um, and all that mill, you now what they've done with the mills is make them into condos, so gentrify areas. This is what's happening throughout the South. You get rid of the mill work, and you either bulldoze the mills or you put in condos. It is now a mantra in, in conservative politics that the culture war is a class war. This is usually said to indicate that culture wars are fought along class lines between largely wealthy, wealthy urban dwellers and the creative class and the working class without college degrees. The decline and fall of NASCAR represents the pattern of dispossession that characterizes this class war. Working class institutions are taken over by suits and technocrats motivated by self-interest and the desire to appeal to the mainstream as opposed to their core constituency. You're seeing this all throughout professional athletics. The appeal is not to the people that really made the sport popular, but to people to try to broaden the sport. And in the process, they lose the people that made the sport popular for whatever reason that they're doing this. And uh, I mean, the only sport that you could, you could, there's two sports, the NBA and the NFL, that I've been able to grow. But the NBA, um, I don't know if it's growing currently. The NFL still is. I don't know about the NBA. Uh, but, you know, Major League Baseball is a blue-collar game. You know, blue-collar fans, blue-collar cities. It's going away. I mean, the, the, the viewership is way down. Um, and NASCAR is seeing the same thing. Uh, with their enemies in control of these institutions, it was hard for the working class to fight back. NASCAR has not learned any of these lessons in its decline. It just unveiled yet another new car in the spirit of the car tomorrow, also a spec car, fit to set a uniform of specifications. It is adding luxury suites to Daytona, even as it removes grandstands for typical fans due to falling attendance. The demographic of the sports has not changed. Its fan base is still 80% white, 63% male, and with an estimated median earnings of 35000 to 45000 per year. NASCAR nonetheless proceeded to ban from its Speedway Confederate flags in 2020, and let's go Brandon Chance in 2022. Nostalgia reigns in towns like Kannapolis because it has to. In addition to the street signs and statues, residents pay their own tributes to the Intimidator. Homes fly flags emblazoned with Earnhardt's signature. Pickup trucks still sport number three spray-painted crudely on the door. There's a common expression among such fans to raise hell, praise Dale. One hopes that they put the former into practice. Otherwise, the war on NASCAR's fan base will only continue. And this is across the United States. And so this piece is indicative of a larger situation going on in America. The culture war, woke culture. It's what's happening across sports. And the importation of things that were considered to be un-American, like soccer. Um, you know, this is something that, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a gentry sport in America. Uh, it isn't across the world. It's a very blue-collar sport in Europe, but here it's gentrified. It's a different kind of audience in soccer. And so the blue-collar sports were things like NASCAR, things like baseball. Those are the blue-collar sports, and they're going away because of corporate interest. 
declining attendance all over the place, higher ticket prices, uh, wokeness, all this stuff is changing. I mean, people were, were moving away from the NFL and NBA because of woke. Now, some of them are coming back, but certainly that's an issue in all these things. But as long as, um, as, long as corporate people believe they're going to make money out of it, they're going to continue to do it. So we'll see what happens. But certainly, you know, I, I enjoyed this piece because I think it does speak to the real issue in America and what's happening across and it really is corporations that are driving it. It's not the government all the time. It's corporations. And I think this piece speaks to that. All right. See you next week on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs>